0: Hello, I'm Sue Nelson and welcome to the Planet Earth podcast. Salmon, plankton and algal blooms up ahead and we meet scientists making bricks from power station emissions. So you bump them
1: together. The white one's quite soft, this brownish tan coloured one, the both of which fit in the, the palm of your hand. That one's, that one's quite hard, so you can make different
0: things out of it. Yeah, that's right. Imagine an idyllic picture of the countryside, the sort you'd see on a jigsaw, and a clear river filled with fish. Well, I don't have to imagine this because that's exactly where I am now, beside the River Test in Hampshire, in the small town of Romsey. The River Test is famous for its trout, but like a lot of rivers around the UK, you can also find salmon here, a beautiful and popular fish, both to anglers and to people like me who love the taste of its cooked pink flesh. But salmon numbers in the UK have been falling since the 1970s and not through overfishing or overconsumption. It's mostly due to unexplained losses at sea. And scientists at the University of Southampton are part of a team that have discovered a new way For the first time, we'll find out where Atlantic salmon spend their time to help preserve the population. And I'm joined by two members of that team, Doctors Kirsty McKenzie and Clive Truman. Kirstine, if I could start with you. I suspect most people, perhaps like myself, would be quite surprised that salmon numbers are falling, not due to overfishing.
2: Absolutely, and the majority of that salmon now comes from farms around Scotland and Norway, particularly, but the wild fisheries have largely been closed
0: down. Clive, is there any clue as to what's caused this? I've said it was unexplained, but you must have some idea, otherwise, you wouldn't be looking out to sea.
3: There's a whole range of Possible explanations: uh, everything from the increased uh, amounts of farming, perhaps salmon um, swing past the cages, pick up parasites like sea lice, and that could be a factor in the number of uh, in the declines. Alternatively, you could be looking at changes in the conditions that the fish experience at sea, maybe due to climate change. Perhaps the amount of food that's available for them has changed. But the truth is. It may be a mixture of all of these different um, factors, and we really don't know what affects the populations in any particular river. And so it's very difficult to understand the overall causes in in a large population that spans a big geographic range.
0: What is the sort of life
2: cycle of a salmon? The salmon start out life in gravel beds where they're laid as eggs by the adults returning from sea, and they swim up through the gravel, spend anywhere between one and three years in the UK, um, feeding in the river until they get too big and they need more food when they go out to sea, as what's called smolts. Those are the small silverfish stage of the salmon. And when they're at sea, they migrate to their feeding grounds, which are likely to be in northern or colder waters. And there they spend between, again, one and three years feeding and getting to the really big silver salmon that you recognise coming back to your plate, at which point they come back to the rivers and they spawn in things called reds, which are gravel deposits that they've dug out into nests, where they lay their eggs, then recover them with gravel, before they hatch and the little fry can swim
0: back up through the gravel to begin it all again. Clive, you're not looking, though, at live salmon, are you, when it comes to doing your research?
3: No, and it's very difficult to study the ocean part of a salmon's life by directly observing the fish. So what we've been trying to do instead is look at salmon tissues that have been preserved over time in collections and analyse those tissues to tell us something about what the fish were doing at sea. And we're really lucky that uh, fish have scales and these scales preserve a record of their age and their growth.
0: So when you've got these very unusual collection of fish scales, what do you do with them?
3: Well, at that point, we go back to the National Oceanography Centre laboratories in Southampton and they get cleaned and dissected and analysed.
0: Well, I think in that case, we ought to go back so you can show me exactly how you do it.
3: So uh, now here we are in the Imaging uh, Biominerals Lab where we keep the scale archives
0: you say scale archives. All I can see so far are a bundle of small white
2: boxes. That's the collection from the River Frume Archive, which contains scales on mounted on microscope slides dating from 1971 all the way up to
0: 2002. And in each box... I'm just taking one open there. Oh, yeah. It's got two tiny translucent scales, probably... Slightly smaller than my fingernail. Yes, they're these, like, the scales
2: from one salmon that was caught in November 2001 on the River Froome. Clive, what are these scales actually
0: made from?
3: Scales are actually related to teeth evolutionarily, and they're made of a protein and a mineral. And The mineral part is apatite, calcium phosphate, and the organic part is collagen. The collagen grows underneath the apatite, and it's the collagen that we're actually using uh, for our analyses.
0: Before we get to the analysis, I see that there are a couple of microscopes over there on the other side of the lab, so I suspect this is an ideal opportunity for us to actually look at those fish scales in more detail and find out exactly how you examine them. Absolutely. Kirsteen, you're going to just pop that slide under the microscope. I did not expect that. If you hadn't told me that... Was a fish scale, I would say you've got a cross-section of a tree.
2: Yes, it does look very much like that, and it's because the salmon put down these calcium phosphate, these apatite mineral rings on top of the scale, every two to three weeks, sometimes even every one week, if they're growing rapidly, they'll lay down another ring on this scale. What are you actually looking for, then? What we're looking for is the very final season of marine growth at sea and from these salmon scales very much like on a tree you can tell how many winters they've had at sea how many summers they've had at sea and how many years they've lived in total including how many years they spent in freshwater purely from counting the rings it's actually simpler than counting the rings what we do is we use the rings to determine which part we sample and if you look at the scales through a microscope there are dark bands and light bands the dark bands are where the rings are very close together because they the fish have been growing slowly in the winter and the light bands where the rings are further apart because the fish have been growing rapidly when there's been lots of food in the summer so we what we do is we dissect out the final portion of summer from the scale and then we have that portion of marine collagen that they grew while they were feeding at sea and we can analyse that chemically to find out what was going on with them at sea.
0: Now this is where you come in isn't it Clive as a a chemist primarily. How do you do this analysis?
3: What we now have is a small section of scale that was laid down while the fish was eating at sea. All marine food chains depend upon Phytoplankton, the plants of the ocean at the bottom of the food chain. Now, when those plants grow, they fix carbon, and there's two forms of carbon, two isotopes, and the proportion of those different isotopes that's fixed into the phytoplankton cells is dependent upon the environmental conditions at the time those plankton grew and in the place that those plankton grew. So fish feeding on plankton in one particular place at one particular time will inherit an isotopic signal or an isotope ratio that's different from fish feeding in a slightly different place. Now what we have in are these archives where we've got 10, 15, 20 years worth of scales. You can imagine this a little bit like... if You, you go on holiday to, to, say, Spain every year. You always go to the same place. And you come back, and if you look at your photographs over 10 or 15 years, and you'll have a record of cloudy years and sunny years based on those photographs... Let's say your next-door neighbour goes to Scotland, same time periods. But they'll have a different record of sunny years and cloudy years. So by comparing your photograph archives, you'll firstly be able to say that you went to different places. But then if you've got a record of the climate across Europe over the same time period, you could match them up. And say, okay, it's most likely that you went to Spain on holiday because these are the years that were sunny, these are the years that were cloudy, and that your neighbour went to Scotland. And that's essentially what we're doing with these scales, with the scales being the photographs. And instead of looking at whether it's cloudy or sunny, we try and match up the carbon isotope record that we see in the scales with the record of sea surface temperature that we can get from satellites or from records of ocean temperature. And they also go back for decades.
0: Kirstine, have you found out where Atlantic salmon are spending a certain period of their time?
2: That's actually been a very interesting result. We've looked at two populations specifically, the one from the River Froom in Dorset and another one from the northeast coast of the UK. And what we found was that the River Froom fish tended to match up between their isotopes and sea surface temperature records around Iceland, whereas the northeast coast salmon seemed to be spending their summers in the Norwegian sea, with the younger portions of the population spending it further south towards home and the older portions further north. Not only that, we found something very unexpected in that fish from just a few hundred miles apart are doing completely different things in the ocean.
0: Clive, I mean this is obviously a new way of approaching this problem. Is it going to be more widespread?
3: Oh, we certainly hope so. At the moment we're continuing to look at a lot more rivers across the UK to uh, start to get a regional picture of which fish migrate to different parts of the ocean and we're hoping to expand that out across the whole of Europe so we'd like to build a continent-wide and perhaps eventually an ocean-wide picture of where individual river fish actually spend their time in the ocean then the ocean life of salmon hopefully become a little bit less of a mystery than it is now.
0: Clive Truman and Kirsty McKenzie thank you both very much. You're listening to the Planet Earth podcast. And if you want to see photos of that lovely river that we were beside just a little earlier, then do check out our Facebook page and Twitter feed. Carbon capture and storage is one of the most promising technologies for tackling rising carbon dioxide levels. The idea is to pump CO2 from power stations into rock rather than the atmosphere. But what if instead of storing the carbon you turn it into something useful, like bricks. Richard Hollingham reports from the University of Nottingham on a new technology under development, carbon capture and utilisation.
1: They look like large boiled sweets or perhaps something you'd use to make gravy. But when you bang them together, they're as hard as bricks. Anthony Benham is business development manager at the National Centre for Carbon Catcher and Storage.
4: One of the experiments that we're trying to do here is to react carbon dioxide with naturally occurring minerals. In this reaction process you actually produce a new type of mineral that can effectively be used in the construction industry, for example, producing aggregates, things like that.
1: This process of combining carbon dioxide with rock turns out to be nothing new. What
4: we're trying to do is accelerate the natural process of weathering that occurs in the environment. So certain types of rocks react with the carbon dioxide that naturally occurs in the air and produce new minerals. This occurs in the normal everyday environment. Uh, It's a very, very slow process. So what we're trying to do is accelerate that process and in doing so you produce these effectively oxo cubes of different sort of minerals, if you like. So this one's quite a sort of a brown colour, and we've got this one here, which is uh, almost pure white, because it looks a bit like chalk. It consists of lots of different naturally occurring minerals, like uh, magnesite, for example. So you bump
1: them together. The white one's quite soft. This brownish, tan-coloured one, both of which fit in the, the palm of your hand, that one's, that one's quite hard, so you can make different things out of them.
4: Yeah, that's right. And the, the products that you get will essentially depend on the materials that you use at the start of the reaction. For example, we use a lot of silicate minerals here, magnesium silicates and calcium silicate minerals, and depending on on the quantities that you use will partly determine on the end products and therefore the colour that you get at the end of the reaction.
5: So we close the the cylinder over there.
1: The reaction itself takes place in a sealed metal flask with a mixing paddle. It looks a bit like an industrial kitchen mixer.
5: We tie the, the screws...
1: In the lab, researcher Marco Dri taught me through the process, which even sounds like it could be a recipe.
5: We just uh, mix uh, our um, feedstock and uh, with uh, the CO two, so we mix them together and we produce our final product, which is the mineral carbonate.
1: So describe the machine to me. the the piece which I mean it has really got a mixer piece on on the bottom that, that mixes yes. round. Uh, And that, what, lowers into this huge vessel here?
5: Yes. So we put inside the vessel the material. We just uh, put the vessel close to the mixer. We close it, uh, and uh, the mixer mixes uh, the material with the carbon dioxide, and uh, we wait uh, some time, and at the end, uh, we have the final product.
1: But at the moment, that final product isn't very big. Even though each domino-sized tablet contains three litres of carbon dioxide, you'd still need a lot of these tablets to make even a single house brick, let alone a house. Mercedes Morotto valla is the chief scientific officer for the National Centre.
6: Yes, you are absolutely right. We need quite a few of these to actually build a house. Uh, These are just uh, demo pieces uh, that we built because they are easy for us to take around and they are easy for people to think about this as uh, something that the CO2 has been solidified and now they can walk out of the room with, with, with this on their hands or in their pockets. Uh, but you are right that we need to scale up the process and we are currently involved in a series of projects looking at the scaling up um, so actually we can see the potential and the feasibility of this technology in the UK. And
1: how would this work in practice? Would you have what a, a brick plant next to a power station? or How would you, this work in practice if, if it did work? Mm-hmm.
6: Yes, I mean that's one of the things that we are now involved in a project together with the Energy Technologies Institute, Caterpillar and also Shell. And what we are looking is at the feasibility of this technology in the UK. So we'll be able to see in which cases or in which locations it makes sense to build plants that will actually take the CO2 and mineralize it.
1: One of the other considerations is that the process itself uses energy which rather defeats the objective. making the bricks involves generating more carbon dioxide. Anthony Benham.
4: This is one of the things that we're trying to look at. So we're looking at ways of accelerating the reaction using typical atmospheric pressures and temperatures and varying the conditions and the concentration of carbon dioxide that you use and the quantity of material that you use in the reaction, because ultimately... If we are to produce this at a a large scale, then you want this to be using the lowest amount of energy that you can.
1: And how much potential has this got to go from a, a small little block that I can easily fit in the palm of my hand to bricks or a house or something substantial? If the underground structures aren't suitable
4: for storing carbon dioxide, this is one of the ways that potentially we could look at using that carbon dioxide to produce useful products, and
1: also lock up the carbon dioxide as well. So if they succeed in scaling up this technology, future power stations could be built with bricks using emissions from power stations.
0: Richard Hollingham's report from the University of Nottingham, ending this edition of the Planet Earth podcast. Do check out that Facebook page and the Twitter feed and let us know what you think of the podcast. Until next time, from the National Oceanography Centre, Southampton...